Okay, now we today, I think, are living in the midst of what we might call a new sexual revolution. A new sexual revolution. I'm pretty sure that uh, you receive what I mean by that. In the 1960s, what happened was a transformation took place. In the 60s, the traditional idea that intimacy was to be reserved for the marital bed. In the 1960s, that idea was thrown out, wasn't it? And it was replaced with a concept, the concept of what was called at the time, of course, free love. The idea that sex did not need to be reserved for the marriage relationship. Now, that was the 1960s. And a lot has changed since then. Is that right? Because what is the thing in the modern world today? Is it not this, that as far as sex is concerned, pretty much anything goes. Isn't that the situation today? Anything is permissible. Anything is permissible. Today in London, you can be with anyone you want, anyone you wish, any amount of partners, any gender, anything, so long as it makes you happy. That is the only rule of this new sexual revolution. Well, just now at London City Presbyterian Church, we are studying um, what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And this is where the Lord Christ himself unveils what it means or what it looks like to follow him as a disciple, the Sermon on the Mount. And in this section of scripture this morning, we are going to see, and truth I think is <laughs> radically diametrically opposed to the values of the city in which we live, we are going to see the Christian's path to sexual purity, the Christian's path to purity. And so I want to invite you to do something. I want to invite you to have the Bible open uh, at Matthew 5, verse 27. Would you do that to keep that there? And I want to draw uh, your attention to a number of things that we are shown and told in this section. This is the first of those. We see here the scale of sexual sin, the scale of sexual sin. It's the first thing we see. Now, can everybody remember um, what the backdrop is here? Can everybody remember what's happening where we are? Do, do we remember at least that Jesus has just dropped a, a bombshell of sorts? Like he has just told these people who are listening to him that for entry into his kingdom, that a kind of an inner or heart righteousness is required. Then, then what has Jesus done? Do we remember from last week? Do we? I hope we do. Jesus contrasting himself with the Pharisees. Jesus has just begun to expound the law. Contrasting himself with the Pharisees. Expounding the, the depths of the law. The scale of the, the standards of the law. And why has Jesus done that? Do we remember? He's done it to show us, to reveal what this heart righteousness in the kingdom of God, this real righteousness, this, this inner righteousness should lead to in the lives of his people. Are we, do we remember? Is it, we got the backdrop. We know what's going on. Contrasting himself with the Pharisees, revealing the standards of the law, the true and real standards of the law. That's the background, right? So what is this this morning? Come on. What is the short section of scripture? What's this? Well, just as last time Jesus revealed that the sixth commandment, do not murder, involved anger. 
So he reveals here that the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, also has an inward heart application that, now, isn't it something? That the seventh commandment is violated by our lust. And, and here I just want to make uh, three initial remarks, really. Three remarks. First is this. That the Pharisees in the first century world should have known better. Don't you agree with that? They should have known better. Last week, if you were here, were you here last week? Um, I, I kind of sneakily, nastily uh, put some of the children on the spot. I kind of tested them about the Ten Commandments. And I wanted to know from the boys and girls, where on the list do not murder? Which number? Was of the Ten Commandments was do not murder, and the kids did well, if you remember that. Well, I think just now, if I was to ask, I'm not, but if I, I'm not, <laughs> but if I was to ask the boys and girls what the tenth and the last commandment was, I think they would be able to tell me. They would just not pretend. Do not covet. Tenth commandment, do not covet. Now, now think of that. Think about it for a moment. In Exodus 20, what is it that the Lord God does to provide examples, to flesh that out? What does he say? What does Moses say in Exodus 20? Do not covet, do not covet your neighbor's house. Do you remember that? Does that sound familiar? Do not covet your neighbor's servant. Now, wait a minute and think about it in the context. What else does Moses say in the 10th commandment? Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Isn't it something? Like these Pharisees are supposed to be experts in the law. I mean, they should have known. They should have understood that the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, is not just about the external things. It's not just about the physical act of adultery. They should have known the inward sin, inward yearn. They should have known that the heart was involved. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. So that Pharisees should have known better. A second comment to make here is this. that See this teaching in Matthew chapter 5. Friend, this is for you. This teaching is for you. You see, I'm sure you would walk with me on this. And I'm sure you would agree with me on this. That when it comes to our lust. That we have such a propensity to make excuses for ourselves. Do you not agree with that? That when it comes to sexual impurity and our sexual desire, that we, we make excuses all the time. Like we blame for our lust, we blame other people. Don't we? You know, why am I inflamed with, with lust and sexual desire? It's, it's, it's my spouse's fault. It's their fault that this is in my heart. Or, or we blame our situations all the time. Don't we? Um, uh, why am I inflamed for lust? It's because of my singleness. My singleness is the actual problem. When I'm married, I will not be like this. My heart will not be like this. We blame other people on other things. We make excuses. And I wonder if that is what is happening in here just now with you. Unmarried men. Are you making excuses here? Are you saying, ah, this is, Andy, this is about committing adultery and I'm a, I'm a single guy. It's doing nothing to do with me. Ladies. You making excuses? Andy, in verse 28, Jesus is actually speaking about 
A man's lust for a woman's got nothing to do with me. It's about a man. Oh, I, I, I urge you. Now today, you be honest with your own heart and you be honest before your God. I know that Jesus specifies men in verse 28, but really, what do we all know in here? This is not just a message for some. This is a message for all. This is a message for us. This is a message for you. And then the third remark to make here is really to just try and mention the actual nature of the sin that we are talking about. Because have a look down and look at verse 28. Do Do you not think that the way it's phrased is rather curious by Jesus in verse 28? Do you see the way that he phrases it? He says, we break the seventh commandment. Doesn't just say lust, doesn't say, say, look, we break this seventh commandment through, and he puts it like lustful intent. Lustful intent. So what is that? Well, I think the best way to try and understand that is for you to think about the first reading. We all know, we, we do not by now know the, the story of David and Bathsheba. Do we in Second Samuel chapter 11? Uh, I, I personally, um, though perhaps it matters not, but personally I think it's one of the saddest stories in all of the Bible. Isn't it? That through the lust, one man's lust, so many people and so many families are ruined, brought to ruination. Through the, It's so sad. It's so sad. But this is the point that I want to make. The Hebrew text in Second Samuel 11 is marvelous and it's so enlightening and it's so helpful. Because in that chapter, we are not just told that David was kind of cutting about on his roof. You know, he's wandering around his roof and catches sight of Bathsheba and that that was sinful. That's not what we were told. See, at that point in the text, there is a Hebrew idiom that is used. And it's an idiom for intensification. And it's kind of like this. That David looked and he saw that she was beautiful to look at. Now, does everyone, is everyone on the same page? Do we see the intensification? One commentator says this, that for David, a glance became a gaze. A glance at this woman became a gaze. And doesn't that help us? Because what is this sin? And, and when are we sinful? When does lust become lust? Is it not when a look becomes desire? Isn't that right? A look becomes desire. I think all of us in here, we know that if an attractive woman was in here just now, not that there isn't, didn't phrase that particularly well, did I? Dearie me. I'm going to get shot by my wife. If there was, if an attractive woman was up the front of the church just now, then I'm sure we could all appreciate without sin that that woman was attractive. If there was high cheekbones or so forth, a traditionally, technically attractive woman, we could all look and say, she is, she is attractive. Or if there was an attractive guy, an especially attractive guy with, you know, chiseled jaw and, and so forth, we could all look at him, couldn't we, without sin? And we could all look and say, I appreciate that he is technically, he is an attractive man. But the question, the point here is, when does that become sinful? 
Like, when is it that our appreciation of what is attractive, when does that become simple? Is it not when longing takes over? Is the problem here not when there is a second look? I mean, consider your heart. Is the problem not when there is a prolonged look? When does lust become lust? When, when is the problem here? Is it not when our imagination, your imagination takes over, runs wild? Is it not when we begin to envisage intimacy, sexual intimacy? I think, if we were honest with ourselves and honest with before God, I think we know what lust is, do we not? Unhealthy desire. When that is there in our mind's eye, when that is there in our heart, that is when the seventh commandment is breached. I, th- I think you'll have to take it from me this next bit, but um, the biblical writer, the biblical commentators on this portion of scripture really are fascinating to read. Like maybe you can imagine that you can maybe imagine the tone of a lot of the biblical commentators that that I will read or that Reverend Perkins will read in sermon preparation. Can you imagine the tone? It's all, it's, in, in a way, it's all very technical. You know, we're reading commentaries about language and the technicalities of language. You might argue it's dry. Uh, it's certainly very academic a lot of the time. You know, that's what we're doing. We're reading this. Here in this portion of scripture, when the biblical commentators get to this, do you know, the tone seems to really dramatically change. And it's like for all of these biblical commentators it's like a kind of silence falls over them all and i think i know what it is i think it's the sheer weight of sin and the guilt of sin you've heard of martin lloyd jones and his book on this he says the following he says nowhere do we have such a terrible exposure of our sin as in the words of our Lord at this point in Matthew chapter 5. And maybe you've heard of a man called Don Carson, another biblical commentator. Listen to what Don Carson says here. He says this in his book on this. He says, I write this line with the greatest of shame. Which one of us, in light of Jesus' teaching here, is not guilty of committing adultery. Which one of us, Don Carson says, is not guilty, in light of what Christ says here, not guilty of breaking the seventh commandment. And it is awful. But Don Carson is right. And I, I know very well as a pastor here that, that there are degrees of struggling with sexual sin. Like, I I know that there's people in this room just now who feel utterly enslaved. Like, it's a daily sin, and it's a daily fight with lust. And there's people in the room, no doubt, like, you know, addicted to pornography and so forth. I know there are degrees of struggling. But isn't it true that all of us, at some stage... Or another, in our adult lives, we know now before God that we have broken the seventh commandment. Don't we? All of us, all of us in our adult lives have known that immoral, unjust, sinful longing in our hearts. 
We're shown by Christ Jesus the scale of sexual sin. But then we see also here, for a second point here, we see the struggle with sexual sin. Now, I think this is true, isn't it? For us um, at LCPC this morning to be thinking about sexual impurity as we sit here in the centre of London. Would you agree that this seems to be about as pertinent and relevant as a subject could possibly ever be? Everything in this city, it would seem sometimes, is kind of engineered to lure you and entice you into sexual impurity and lust. Doesn't it sometimes feel like that? Like all the advertising has kind of sexual undertones and the like music videos and movies we might watch and, and fashion and everything seems to actually be set up by our culture and society to try and sneer us, snag us and drag us and lure us into sexual impurity. So what, what do we say to that? Don't we cry out to God? And don't we cry out, God, help us? God, how do we deal with it? Like, how do we live as your people in such a, a hyper-sexualized culture as this? Well, I'll tell you what, before we delve into the, the verse here, what I want to do is to lay before you this morning some biblical pointers and biblical helps for this fight against sexual impurity. So I, I ask you again, if you're honest with yourself, as you're sitting here, and if this is an active issue in your life, and it is a struggle for you just now, I ask you, will you listen? These are five pointers from God's word. The first of all, Christian friend, brother, sister, if this is an issue for you, be prayerful. And you look back at me and you say, really, is that it? A bit obvious. But I throw that back to you and say, but are you doing that? I mean, scripture makes it so abundantly clear to us, doesn't it? That we can't win this war. We can't, we can't, we can't put this to death by ourselves. We need divine help. So brother, or sister, if you're really, really struggling with this, I am pleading with you to pray, pray. And I don't mean just at that point of sexual temptation when the temptation seems so much, oh yeah, we pray then, of course we pray. No, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, first thing in the morning, every morning. Like if this is an act of issue in your life, you get up, what do you do? You seek the face of God and you plead with him daily, plead for the Holy Spirit's help. Be prayerful. Second thing, second thing, brother, sister, be accountable. There's a, there's a really quite um, uncomfortable exhortation that we find in the book of James chapter 5. It's quite uncomfortable. If you know where I'm going, you know it's uncomfortable. Because we are told by God to confess our sins to whom? In James 5.16. To confess our sins to others. And we're told elsewhere, aren't we? To bear one another's burdens. Now, do we, we put these things together? Do we see what we ought to do? If you are struggling with these sins, what do we do? What must you not do? Keep it to yourself. Don't keep it to yourself. 
Like we must be opening up. We must be speaking to other people. If you're struggling with sexual impurity, speak to older Christians. Speak to mature believers. Speak to the elders that God has put over you in Christ Jesus. But we've got to be accountable to one another. So we'll be prayerful. We'll be accountable. A third one here. We have to be ready to run. <laughs> Are we ready to run? And um, we know, don't we? If we know the story of David and Bathsheba, don't we know the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife? Boys and girls, just nod if you know the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Do we know it? All my children shoot their heads like that. Yeah, you will by the end of the day know the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. What happens in the story? Now, Joseph is faced with sexual temptation. There is this temptation right there for Joseph. And what is his reaction? He scarpers, doesn't he? I mean, he legs it as quick as he can. Now, 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 take that idea. Isn't this true that in the New Testament, that idea is reinforced for us by the Apostle Paul? Because what is the command that Paul gives to you about sexual temptation, sexual immorality? What does he say? First Corinthians 6. He says, run. Paul says, flee. Any form of sexual impurity, sexual immorality, flee! And don't we see what that means for us, for you, and for me, if we're struggling with this? We have to live our lives constantly on our heels, ready to move. Like if we're in a situation where there is sexual temptation and impurity around us, what do we do? Guess what we do? We get out of there as quickly as we can. And if we are on our computer... How do we go on our computer? We go on our computer ready to run, ready to switch off a browser, ready to change things. We've got to be, we've got to be ready to move, to scarf, to leg it. We've got to be prayerful. We've got to be accountable. We've got to be ready to run. Fourth one, we have to be armed with scripture. Um, again, most of you in here were uh, present last uh, Sunday morning. And in passing, in just a word, I mentioned last Sunday, the Lord Christ and the moment that he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And Satan came to the Lord Jesus, the devil came to him, tempted Jesus three times. And last Sunday morning, I said that Jesus responded to that temptation with, with God's word. Now, is this not more accurate to say that at that point in the wilderness, the Lord Jesus Christ did not just respond with God's words, but he responded with memorized scripture. Isn't that more accurate? Memorized scripture. And yes, I know that the temptation that Jesus was facing was not sexual in nature at that point. But do we not, and I ask you, do you not see the principle still stands? Like, how are you to deal with sexual temptation when it hits you? At that very point of sexual temptation, what must you do? Listen to me. You must flood your mind with God's word. Right then, when that te temptation hits you, when it is there, you bring it 
in, you flood your thinking, your mind, your everything with verses from scripture, chapters of scripture. You even, at that point, verbalize God's word, phrases, phrases, verses of scripture. And I have to challenge you. Do you know sufficient scripture by heart to do that? And then the fifth of these. I wonder if you got them. Did you? There is be prayerful, be accountable, be ready to run, be armed with scripture. The fifth one here, be looking elsewhere. Um, There's a number of visitors to the congregation this morning. I don't know if you know it if you're visiting, but we're a very cool church. (laughs) It might, we are. Yes, physically it is cool. Um, But we are. Like other churches might have electric guitar solos and uh, cool looking uh, ministers with tattoos and a goatee beard. And so we are cooler than all of them because we have a WhatsApp group about learning the shorter catechism. So we are cooler than any other church. Now, because we have a group in this congregation that are trying to learn the Westminster Shorter Catechism, I know that most of you can respond to this. Can you? Man's chief end. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy. Wait. Enjoy him. Haven't we lost sight of that? Our chief end to glorify God, but to seek our delight, our joy, our satisfaction in God. And what is happening? We are looking, when we are struggling with sexual impurity, we are looking elsewhere for that joy, for that delight in our life. And I'm saying to you, the greatest way of combating sexual sin and sexual desire is not to look at pornography. It's not to look at filth. It is to look at the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we combat this sin? How do we confess our sin? We confess it to Jesus and we linger. We look not to pornography, but to the risen son of man. Now, here's the truth. These five helps from scripture. This is not in any way exhaustive. And I have very, very deliberately this morning omitted A crucial key help for battling and fighting sexual immorality. Do you want to know what that is? I mean, is it this morning that you're sweating? Because you know your guilt and your sin. That you know that this is uh, enslaved you lust. Do you want to know what this is? If so, do this with me. Look at verse 29. How does Jesus tell you to deal with sexual impurity? Verse 29. And read it as though you had never read it before. If your right eye causes you to sin, what does Jesus say? Tear it out and throw it away. Now, if you are reading that as though you had never read that before, I think what would happen here is that you would be, in a sense, disgusted. Isn't that so graphic? If your right eye... Pluck, take your eye out and chuck it away. It's so graphic, it's so graphic, but what does it mean? Well, I have, I have to, I have to say, don't I, that it is not literal. I have to say that. And some have made that mistake 
Uh, there's a man called Origen of Alexandria who was an early church father. And here was a man, godly man, who was, he was really struggling with lust, struggling with sexual impurity. He, he reads these verses, and can you guess what he did? Um, I've got to be careful with my language, but he... Um, he dismembered himself, shall we say. Some people have made this mistake of thinking it's literal. And it's not literal. It is figurative. But it is no less important for being figurative. So honestly, if you have not listened to any of this this morning, and if you are only going to get one phrase today, please, please hear this. That before you in Matthew 5, Jesus is calling for drastic measures. In dealing with sexual impurity. Drastic measures. John Stott says that it is not about mutilation. It is about mortification of sin. Really, surely it is this idea that even if it's going to be painful for you, Christian friend, as plucking an eye would no doubt be. And even if that thing that has to be thrown away seems to you to be essential, as a right eye does, then what is Christ calling for here? He is calling to you, saying to you, rid yourselves, rid your life of anything and everything that you know is leading you into lust and sexual impurity. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. And I stand before you and I make this appeal to you if you are really struggling here and if this is a problem for you, today obey the word of God and resolve to take drastic steps. Is it your computer that is at the root of your problem? Is that where the weakness is? Then I, by all means, great. I know what the usual uh, application would be. It would be, you know, download uh, accountability software on your computer. No, just chuck it out. Seriously, chuck drastic steps. Get rid of it. If that is causing you to fall and causing you to sin. And if it's just apps on your phone that very subtly are, are causing you to lust after other people. I mean, come on, seriously. Do we not just delete the, the apps? I don't care what people think. Who cares what your family or your friends are going to think about it? But you, you take the step, don't you? And is it Netflix? Is it just watching, you know, sitting back watching TV series, not really thinking about the graphic imagery that is going to come your way? Is that causing you? We unsubscribe, do we not? I mean, is that not an obvious thing? Or is it time alone? Is that it? Is that what's problematic for you? Get out! Oh, just be out, be meeting up with other people. Is it books that you're reading? They're flaming your imagination. Bad for your mind, bad for your heart. Burn them. Burn them. Rip them up. Chuck them. You see it, do you not? Whatever it is, whatever it is that is causing us, leading us into lust. What does Christ say here? We've got to pluck it out and we've got to chuck it away. And then the third thing. If we see the scale of sin and the struggle with sin, the third thing is the seriousness of sexual sin. Because I've, I've said a moment ago that this topic is really apt for London, isn't it? Like, it's really apt for our culture. But we have in here a much sadder truth to face up to. And it is that the fact that, that sexual sin and sexual impurity and lust 
seems really pertinent to the church. Barely a week goes by, does it, where we don't hear of somebody, a minister, an, an elder, or a member of the church that is fallen and who gives in to temptation a latest scandal across the pond or here. And there's a 16th century writer who says this, that lust is a quicksand that has sucked in and destroyed countless believers. It's a quicksand, right? And because of that, we ask, I think, a question. The question that flows is, why? I mean, don't we ask that question? Like, why is it always, or so often, why is it lust that causes such problems for for Christian men and women and ministers? Why is it? Why is it not always alcohol? Why is it not always greed? Why is it not always gamp? Why is it so often sexual impurity that brings us down? Is this not part of the answer, at least? That we in the church do not recognize the seriousness of sexual sin and sexual impurity. And we've, we've ended up buying into the lie that society tells us about. What does society say to you? It says, you don't have to worry about this sin. No one's going to find out. Nobody knows your heart. It's a lie. God knows your heart. Society tells us, oh, it's, it's just natural. You know, our desires are fine. It's natural. All of these lies we, we buy into. The lie that no one's harmed when you're lusting. And we end up declaring with our culture, it's no big deal. This stuff is not a big deal. Who cares it's not a big deal? Well, I long for you to appreciate how errant that is. So do we have proof? As Christians, do we have proof that this is so severe and seriousness? Serious, we do. First of all, think about the New Testament evidence. Have you heard of what are called vice lists in the New Testament? Do you know what I'm talking about if I say a vice list? So it's a, these lists that appear frequently in the New Testament of the offenses that mark those who are to be condemned. Yeah, a vice list. So it's a list. We've got them a lot of them in the New Testament. It speaks of those, the sort of sins that mark those who are outside the kingdom of God. Now, if I had more time at my disposal, I would lead you to all of these vice lists and we'd be here all afternoon. And we're not going to do that. But can you guess this morning what appears in so many of the vice lists of the New Testament? Get this. Not in amongst most of the vice lists, but heading, leading the list of the sins that mark those who are condemned is sexual immorality. John Flavel, he says this, that lust is a sin that has the scent of fire and brimstone wherever you encounter it in Scripture. It has the scent of fire and brimstone about it. 
But maybe you're still sitting there and you're thinking, no, it's not that big a deal. It's not up there with anger and committing adultery. Maybe you're not convinced. Do we have any more proof that sexual sin is serious? Well, tell you what, why don't you look at your page? I want you to do two things with me. We're going to draw to a conclusion. If you look at the end of verse 29, that's the first thing that I want you to do. Look at the end of verse 29. Maybe the boys and girls too can look at it. Then the second thing that I want you to do is look at the end of verse 30. Oh, what do you see? Jesus here before you in this section of scripture, isn't that a remarkable thought, even this, that the Lord Christ repeats the idea, repeats the idea of hell. So what is that? Well, the word that is used there is the Greek word, is the word Gehenna. Have you heard that word before? Gehenna. It refers to a location. It's a place on the south side of Jerusalem. So on the south side of Jerusalem, Gehenna. It was in what is called the Valley of Hinnom. And maybe some here are familiar with the idea that Gehenna became a rubbish dump. And so proverbially it said that the fires in the rubbish dump were always burning in Gehenna and the Valley of Hinnom. Now that's important. Do you know what I think is more important about this idea of Gehenna is that it was linked with pagan idolatry. In the Old Testament, early on in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 23, we are told that in Gehenna, in the Valley of Hinnom, child sacrifices took place. That people would sacrifice and offer their children, sacrifice their children to pagan gods. And because of that, over time, the Jews began to associate Gehenna and the Valley of Hinnom with the final destruction and the final judgment of God. They began to link it. This is a place of darkness. This is a place of, of, of death. This is a place of eternal destruction. And now you see what Jesus is doing. Oh, don't you quake. Don't you quake. What is Christ saying here? That unaddressed sexual sin has the most awful consequences. That unconfessed sexual sin, Jesus says here, leads to hell, to eternal damnation. And yet still maybe you're resolved to continue in the way that you have always lived and not address the sin. If so, I end with this. Where, where most clearly do you see your sexual impurity is a terrible and serious thing? Do we not see it most clearly at the cross of Calvary? Because Christian friends in here, what has God had to do in order to deal with your sexual impurity and your lust The Lord God has had to watch his only beloved son die in pain and torment. Do we not see at Golgotha the gravity and the weight of our sexual impurity? And yet, that is true. (laughs) But isn't this also the case that yes, we see how seriousness our sexual sin is at Golgotha? But we also see our cause for joy at Calvary. Because Christian friends in here, even if this is is apt in your life and life, 
What do you know to be true? That in Christ, Christian friend, guilt is gone. Isn't that a marvelous thing for us to meditate on just now? That in Christ Jesus, the shame of our sexual impurity, all that shame and the indignity of lust and even all of the punishment due for it, all of it has been swallowed up and born in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know there is salvation available for all who trust in Christ Jesus. And so I end with one question, so obvious where I'm going to go. What's the question I must ask? Have you done it? Have you? Like, if you're honest with yourself this morning, and honest before your God today, have you bowed to Christ Jesus? Have you repented and believed in him? Oh, if you have, don't you leave rejoicing. Don't you leave, don't you marvel at the gospel, don't you? Because... Even our lust, even our impurity, by Christ, in him, because of grace, it has been eternally forgiven by our God. Let's pray. Lord God, us, your people... We rejoice that we are righteous and clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we pant and we long to live ever in Christ-likeness. So as your people and as a congregation, we fall before our almighty God. And we confess to you our sinfulness, our wickedness, our Mistakes are errors. Our logging, the seventh commandment, has been broken. And we rejoice, Lord God, that by confession of sin, there is new life for, for us in Christ. We thank you that the Lord Christ has borne all of our guilt and pain, our suffering and shame, that the punishment has been taken away, that hell holds no fear for the children of God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.